Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Paul Vidic. Paul is an author and former senior executive in the entertainment industry for over 20 years. After leaving his business career, he turned to writing full-time. His first novel, An Honorable Man, a publisher's weekly top 10 mystery and thriller in 2016, was followed by The Good Assassin and The Coldest Warrior. His essays and nonfiction have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Lit Hub, The Nation, Crime Reads, and elsewhere. Paul's newest novel, The Mercenary, releases February 2nd through Pegasus. Paul, congrats on The Mercenary. We're very excited to have you on the show today. How's it going? Very good, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. You mentioned you've listened to the podcast before. My first question is always, where are you in the world right now? So tell us, where are you based? I'm based in southern Manhattan, in Soho. And I have a wonderful view from my window of the much more deserted streets of Soho, much more deserted than they were a year ago. But it's been, you know, it's a very pleasant place to work. And I've lived in this same loft for over 40 years. So it's a, a place I feel very comfortable in. It's always great to talk to someone in New York. Can you tell us from an author's perspective, prior to COVID, of course, what were the benefits, the pros, the cons to being a writer in New York City, where a lot of the big publishers are? I don't think proximity to the publishers makes a lot of difference because everyone is so connected, you know, electronically, communication is so synthetic these days. But I always found New York attractive for another reason. It's a, a city that drew me after college. I was attracted to the energy of the city, its life, its cultural density, and its cultural legacies. And it's a place where a lot of culture, you know, is compressed. And that, I found, was a way of sort of stimulating my own artistic and writerly instincts. Not to say that you can't be a great writer somewhere else. And sometimes people who do write in New York leave New York because it's too much. You know, the sensory overload sometimes makes it difficult to find that quiet place in your own mind where stories emerge. But I wasn't like that. I was drawn to New York and still love New York for its you know, energy and the fact that there are so many writers in New York. And uh, it's fun to, when the world returns to somewhat normal, it'll be fun to, to meet with them, to have coffee with them, and to share the sorts of things that you talk about in a career. Being in New York, obviously, you just mentioned quarantine, COVID times, but writers in general are a pretty isolated bunch. So from your perspective, have you been affected much by quarantine? How have you been affected? What's your experience been? I don't think I've been personally affected. Again, writing is a a thing where you go into your own mind and you need a comfortable place. 
in which to put down your thoughts. In my case, I wrote a novel during the first six months of the pandemic. And, and I think one of the things that people don't always understand about the writing process is that you're really not writing about current events. You know, you're not writing journalism, you're not writing nonfiction, which feed off of, you know, recent history. But for the most part, writers need to look over their shoulder into the past. And sometimes it can be 100 years or 200 years, or sometimes it can be five years. But it's that distance from the specific things that you're writing about that gives you perspective on those things. And that perspective helps the writer, certainly helps me, get a sense of the authentic story, the elements of truth that, you know, I try and explore. So that perspective is something that isn't really place-based. So I think that the choice of where you write is really a choice about where you feel comfortable. But the process itself, I think, for all writers is similar. You sort of have to find that little, that little world, that bubble, so to speak, in which you feel comfortable exploring, you know, your rear view mirror. Love that. For those writers listening who maybe are struggling with writing during these times, do you have any words of wisdom? Yeah, everyone, every writer's process is different. I think the most important thing is you find a process that works for you. In my case, the process has been one of, because of the nature of the novels I write, I do a lot of research. And sometimes in my case, The Mercenary, for example, the one we're talking about today, I researched it for six months before I began writing the book. And then it took six months to write. But the research, because the book takes place in Moscow, a lot of the research and most of the research dealt with what was going on in Moscow and the Soviet Union in 1985. And the more research I did, and the more I developed the characters, the more comfortable I became with the story. So for me, the ability to inhabit that world and know all the details of the world is what gets me to the place where I begin to be confident about writing the first sentence in imagining the end of the novel. And so it's a little bit like if you land in a foreign country, your first impressions are sort of like postcards, but you really don't have a lot to go on about the, you know, the underlying life, the people who live there on a daily basis. But the longer you are there, the more comfortable you become with all the little details of life in that place. And for me, starting a novel is a little bit like landing as a tourist in a place and living there long enough that I become comfortable with everything that's going on. So for me, research is important. And of course, that's partly because I write espionage novels that take place in the past. They've taken place in 53 in Washington, in 59 in Cuba. And then this last one is 1985 in Moscow. But I do try and understand my characters deeply before I start writing. So I sort of create dossiers on each of them. I know where they were born. I know, you know, what religion they practice. I know what drink they like to drink. 
And I can describe a whole life to you about each of the characters, a life that doesn't exist on the page, but has to exist in my imagination for me to credibly present those characters on the page. Before we get into process, I would love to hear about your origin story. In your bio, I mentioned that you were a former entertainment industry executive for 20 years, and then you left that career to move on to writing full-time. So can you walk us through your trajectory? Were you writing during that time? I was a writer before I was a business executive, and then I went back to writing. I left college, came to New York, wanted to be in the film business. There was no film business in New York at the time, so I started writing. And I quickly discovered that I didn't have a lot of confidence, and I wasn't particularly good at what I was doing. And my wife became pregnant, and I needed a job. So I went to business school and continued to write sort of on the margins of my life, early in the morning, on weekends. But nothing really came of it until my mother died, and I started writing short stories. The first one was about a young boy whose mother had died. And it seems odd to say this, but it was probably the most, the first truthful thing I had written, because I was sort of caught up in the idea of writing and not really in touch with my own feelings about the things I wanted to write about. So that went on, you know, and I, my career rose. I became very successful in the entertainment business. But in my 50s, I remembered the contract I had made or the bargain I had made with myself when I went to business school which was that when I was financially able to leave business, I would, and I would go back to writing. So I left my career, which surprised many of my colleagues, because you know I had a big job and made a lot of money. And then I went and got an MFA at Rutgers Newark and studied with Jane Ann Phillips. And that became sort of a in education, in you know, the craft of writing, in education, in things that I needed to put together to be a successful writer. And that was about a 10-year process. And I think the thing, one of the things that kept me motivated throughout that period, because again, I'm talking about you know, somebody who's 55, 56 years old, that I kept making lists of other very successful writers who had published their first book after the age of 50. And it's a very long list. And that list kept me motivated. I said, you know, if they can do this, then I can certainly do this. And I think it, it sort of harkens back to something that Malcolm Gladwell said, which is that if you're going to be good at anything, you've got to do it for at least 10,000 hours. And so for those 10 years, I committed a lot of time to writing and to reading. And, and out of that emerged my first novel, An Honorable Man, which was published when I was 65. So, you know, everybody's story is different, but I would say persistence, self-confidence, and the ability to, to have a story that is worth telling that the world is interested in reading you know, are important parts of, you know, getting to a place where you're a published author. Love that. Paul, I would love to begin to talk process with you before we do. Are you okay with me doing my worst on reading the description of The Mercenary? Please do. Thank you. Here I go. 
from acclaimed spy novelist Paul Vidic. Comes a top new thriller following the attempted exfiltration of a KGB officer from the ever-changing and always dangerous USSR in the mid-1980s. Moscow, 1985, the Soviet Union and its communist regime are in the last stages of decline, but remain opaque to the rest of the world and still very dangerous. In this ever-shifting landscape, a senior KGB officer, codenamed Gambit, has approached the CIA Moscow station chief with top-secret military weapons intelligence and asked to be exfiltrated. Gambit demands that his handler be a former CIA officer, Alex Garin, a former KGB officer who defected to the American side. The CIA had never successfully exfiltrated a KGB officer from Moscow, and the top brass do not trust Garin, but they have no other option. Gambit's secrets could be the deciding factor in the Cold War. Garin is able to gain the trust of Gambit, but remains an enigma. He is a mercenary acting in self-interest. Or are there deeper secrets from his past? That would explain where his loyalties truly lie. As the date nears for Gambit's exfiltration, and with the walls closing in on both of them, Garen begins a relationship with a Russian agent and sets into motion a plan that could compromise everything. Then I've got a couple quotes. This one from Booklist. Evoking without imitating classic Le Carre, Vidic supplements the world weariness we expect from cold warriors in the game Too Long by Given Garen a satisfyingly contrarian contempt for agency puppeteers. Another one, Vidic's rare talent for repopulating history with complex, incredible characters is fully on display in his fourth novel, The Mercenary. And that's from Mal Warwick's blog on books. There are many more quotes. Paul, how are you feeling, before we get into process, about the book leading up to its release? I feel great, actually. There's always, you know, different points of trepidation, you know, First is when you finished it and you feel great about it. And then you hand it in to your agent or your editor and they come back with, you know, a list of two pages of questions and changes. And you realize that what you felt great about is still there, but it's not complete. And the process of making those changes for me has always been about listening to what other people have to say about the book. Because there are really two parts of this process. One is the writing of it. And then second is what the reader brings to it, which is their own imagination. And they see the faults in the novel that you, the writer, don't see because you're so caught up in it. But then, you know, we're at this point in time when it's done, it's out there in the world. And, you know, you go through another test, the test of what real readers think of it. And the first blurbs come in and then, you know, first social media comments come in. And, and I've been, you know, very pleased, you know, with how people have reacted to the book. So at this point, I'm delighted that it's out there and I'm looking forward to the next couple of months as we market the book. You mentioned marketing. Let's rewind back to the inception. You mentioned earlier, you have to find a story worth telling. From your perspective, how do you decide? on your ideas? How do you land on the ideas and commit and say, okay, this is an idea worth telling? And also, this is something I want to commit to because obviously writing a book takes a lot of time. That's a good question. In my case, as a writer, I usually start with setting. Everybody starts with setting. Some people start with a single sentence or an idea of a character. In my case, I usually start with setting. And in this case, the Soviet Union. I was fascinated by the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And, you know, I grew up with the Soviet Union being a dangerous adversary of the United States. 
And then, you know, quite suddenly it collapsed like a consumptive old man. In Moscow, in the twilight of that power, of its power, it struck me as a good setting for a Cold War novel. It was that moment when the Soviet Union's illusion of dominance meant the grim reality of crumbling system. And I had finished, you know, my third novel, and the challenge is always, you know, what do you do next? Where do you take your character next? Or where do you take a story? And so I've embraced the spy novel, and uh, Moscow in 1985 felt like a really good place to set the novel. And having decided that, then I began to do a lot of research. And I've not been to Moscow, but there are, you know, a lot of books about Moscow, a lot of books by ex-KGB, books by historians. And it was in the midst of reading and doing the initial research that I came across the real-life defection of a man by the name of Adolf Polkachev who was a senior radar specialist in the Soviet military. And he had been passing a lot of secrets, military secrets, to the West. And in the process of this, it was an attempted exfiltration of him. And I read stories of other men who tried to defect. And I began to you know, wonder what their motives were. You know, who were these people? They had families. They clearly in one way or another, were attracted to leaving their country. And I began to think, and that sort of defection is something that typically only went one way. You didn't find, with a few exceptions, you know, Kim Philby being one of them, you don't find European spies and American spies defecting to Russia. So there's something going on in Russia then where these people would choose to leave their family behind or choose to take their family with them, risking their lives in the process. And I decided that that was an interesting premise for a novel, the idea that there's an attempted exfiltration. At the time, Moscow was what the CIA called a denied city, which was that it was under extreme surveillance if you were you know, in the CIA. Every move you made in the city was under surveillance by plainclothes KBG officers. So you can imagine the difficulty of trying to connect with your Soviet counterpart who wants to give you secrets and to defect when, in fact, every move you make is under surveillance. So it struck me as a very interesting premise. And around that premise, then, I built the story and developed, you know, several layers of plot and several you know, interesting characters that became the tapestry of the story. But I started with setting. Setting to me is, really isn't an illustrator's depiction of a place. It's more about the mood, the atmosphere, and what brings people to a particular place in a particular time. It's one reason why you see most Spy novels, or many spy novels, are set in places like Berlin, or Moscow, or London. And they're not set in Dubuque, Iowa, or they're not set in, you know, small towns. They're set in a crossroads where the conflicts, political conflicts, you know, confront each other. So that's how I started this. I needed a place I thought Moscow would be interesting. 
And then from that, in the research I did, characters came into my imagination and I started building a world around that. You mentioned research. For those writers listening who are considering starting a book that takes place in the past, is there a sweet spot, so to speak, of research you found from your experience? A certain number of books, a certain amount of time you spend researching? Is it a month? Is it several months? What's your experience been specifically? I typically research a book for about six months. And I don't stop researching even during the course of the writing of the book. I do enough research to feel like I can create an authentic and believable world. And so for me, the research is an effort to develop the details necessary to create an authentic environment. So when I'm writing about Moscow, I'm not writing about all things Moscow. I'm writing about the lives of the characters who I've created. So they live in particular places. They walk down particular streets. They eat in certain restaurants. They move in patterns. Those are the things that the reader needs to feel are authentic. And sometimes in a couple of my novels, I've done what I'll call location scouting. I've visited Cuba and Washington and tried to imagine my characters in those cities and how they, you know, blend in. In the case of the Moscow novel, I wasn't able to go to Moscow because of the pandemic, which created a bit of a challenge for me. And I, when I began to think that I'm going to write this novel in Moscow, I had to question whether I would be able to write a novel about a place I had not visited. And I decided to go ahead because ultimately the thing that I need to do is create the small bubble world that is the, you know, the world of the novel. I need to create that. I don't have to create a novel about Moscow at large. And it so happens that now with Google Maps and other mapping systems, you can actually visit Moscow virtually. And you can walk down the street. The Google camera walks with you and you can look in buildings. And so in some ways, I was able to visit Moscow from my office here in Soho and feel very comfortable that I had captured the spirit of the city and the physical architecture of the city. Of course, when I was done, I decided I needed somebody who had been in Moscow in 1985, who had been in the embassy where a lot of the story takes place, to read the book in order to corroborate that it worked and that it was authentic. And I happened to get in touch with a guy named John Barely, who was the American ambassador to the Russian Federation from 2008 to 2012. And he very graciously read the book. So it happens that he had been in the embassy in 1985 as well. So he was a firsthand witness to the events and the time that I was writing them. And he loved the book and he made good number of suggestions that I think improved the book. But when he came back to me <laughs> and, you know, thought well of it, I knew that I had accomplished something, which was to sort of create this imaginary world that worked. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? 
Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You also mentioned that once you have enough research, you begin to develop the characters. At one point you mentioned understanding them deeply, creating dossiers that include where they were born, what religion they are, what they drink, describing a life. Can you walk us through in a little bit more detail what those dossiers look like and what your thought process is from the beginning? Do you have a template that you have for characters? I don't have a template. It starts with, you know, why is a person in a place? And if it's a spy, it's sort of obviously related to the work of espionage. But the novel obviously starts with a protagonist. And often in my protagonist, there's what I'll call the request moment. It's a bit like the ghost in Hamlet, who in the, I think, the second act, asks young Hamlet to revenge his father's murder. And that request moment then sets up the action of the play. And everything else flows from that. It's a sort of request you can't walk away from. And in my case, there's usually a request moment in the novel. In my case, the second chapter is the request moment where the character Alex Guerin receives a call. He's in New York and he's in the midst of a failed relationship and he's a little bit unmoored in his life. And so he thought he was going to get away from this business of espionage and he left the agency, but he's drawn in and drawn back. And he returns to Moscow where he'd been earlier. But the request moment sets up his mission in Moscow. And because it's by its nature, he's being tasked to exfiltrate another character. The things that become important about his character are, where does he live in Moscow? How does he behave in Moscow? Does he trust other people? And those elements of wariness get reflected in his life. So understanding the character's place in the events, understanding the character's motives in the events become really central to how the plot plays out. I'm a writer who believes that plot 
emerges from character. I think that F. Scott Fitzgerald said that plot is character and character is plot. And that plot can emerge from character, but it's very unlikely that character will emerge from plot. So understanding the motives and the conflicts of the characters then allows you to dress them up in the sorts of specific details. You can understand, in my case, this character as a a background that emerges through the, the book itself. And in some ways, as you write these characters, you come to places where you ask yourself questions about, you know, why would he do this? Or why would he do that? And why would he choose one or the other? And to answer that question, you sort of have to look into the character. You have to understand the character. And then from that, you realize, well, he would only go in one direction because that's sort of who he is. And I think Although I'm somebody who likes to know the ending of a book before I begin writing the book, one of the exciting things about the process inside the book is to let the character help help navigate you, the writer, towards the events that you know are ahead. And it's as a writer who likes to control things, sometimes the most exciting part is when I'm not in control and I'm allowing the character to make these choices. What about themes? Are you the type of author that chooses your themes somewhat early on and uses those to guide some of the story? Or do you find that your themes kind of appear organically by the end of completing the book? I have chosen to write about the world of spies largely because it's a world that is rich with themes. And I like to explore the morality in the world of spies. For example, An Honorable Man, the first novel, explores the nature of honor. The Mercenary, this book, explores the nature of trust. The Coldest Warrior, which was my last novel, explores the nature of truth. And the exciting thing about the world of spies is that they operate somewhat outside of the normal limits of you know, legal behavior that we all are subject to. In a way, they're legally sanctioned criminals. They lie as a part of their work. They suborn friends in the pursuit of truth, their truth. And sometimes extrajudicial executions are in place of justice. And so when you're working in this sort of murky moral landscape, the characters have to sort of create their own sort of moral compass. So they themselves aren't necessarily drag that darkness into themselves. So things like truth, justice, friendship, the cycles of violence are things that, you know, are part of our world. But in the world of spies, you get to explore them in a particularly, you know, rich way. And that's what, you know, that's what I found interesting. You know, and spies themselves are interesting because they're unusual in one way, and that is that they lie for a business as part of their work. Now, we all lie in, you know, our daily lives, but the spy lies because, you know, it's a part of what he has to do in order to, you know, go about his business. 
And that's sort of one of the reasons that I've, you know, chosen the spy novel. John Le Carre once said that a spy story is not just a spy story, but it can be a love story, a story about engagement and escape and about the search for integrity. But it's also a spy story. Spies marry, cheat, divorce, play games of sexual and political betrayal. And it all operates at high stakes, which makes the novel interesting. So spies lie in the service of truth. They suborn friends in the name of national security. And they conduct extrajudicial assassinations in the name of justice. And I think we're all fascinated by these contradictions. And they were also entertained by the inherent hypocrisy of these contradictions. So once you come up with your idea, you do your research, develop your characters, you sit down to start writing the book. Can you walk us through on a high level what that looks like? Are you working chapter by chapter? How many passes are you doing as you go through the book? And how long does it take you to complete it from start to finish? Before I start writing, I have a chapter outline that I follow. And in it, I describe what I need to accomplish in the chapter, what the characters are going to do, what the action of the chapter is. And I know what the threads are that connect themes, characters between chapters. Typically, what I'll do is... With all of that in my head, I'll write a first draft by hand. And that will usually take me anywhere from 45 to 60 days. And it's rough. It's nothing I would ever share with anybody, but it's trying to get the entire story down at one time. And then I will do probably three more handwritten drafts. With each draft, the writing gets better. The subtlety and the nuance of the characters gets better. You know, layering gets applied. And then after the fourth, usually the fourth handwritten draft, I will type it into a computer. Then it becomes sort of a, well, I'll call that first draft. And that process of, you know, three or four handwritten drafts and a type draft probably takes about six months. And then when that's done, that is sort of a a first draft, a working draft that I I then play with a great deal. And somewhere around six or seven months from, you know, when I first start writing, I then give it to a trusted set of readers. I have five or six readers who are in a writer's group with me, and they'll make their first comments. And they're always very helpful because they reveal things where I worked too quickly. I wasn't, I didn't spend enough time in the scene or didn't develop a relationship. And they see through all of that. And then with that feedback, I go and do another draft. And it's probably that next draft that I first show to my agent. But as many people have said, writing is really rewriting. And that's certainly the case with me. You know, I try and get the story in place, the characters in place. But then the line-by-line writing, the paragraph-by-paragraph construction of scenes is a long process. And I think being patient with the work is very important. To be able to step back from it and then get into it and step back from it again, to understand the rhythm of the story, the 
subtleties of the characters. For me, it's a little bit like a good friend of mine, Tom Nascassia, was a painter who would start with line drawings and then charcoal. And then ultimately, he would begin applying oil paint. And he had the most amazing textures in his paint. And the way he got there was to paint over and over and over again. And all the colors then became subtle and, and deeper. And I feel the same way about writing. You write a paragraph over and over again. And with each writing, if you're patient, the subtleties emerge, the layering of language, the repetition of themes, language, and words all builds on itself. And that is not something you can outline. It's something that comes from the work itself. Love that. Last question in regards to the book. What are you most excited about for those readers, those listeners maybe, who are intrigued by the book and want to read it, and those readers in general who are going to read it? What are you most excited about them to take away from the book itself? This main character was born in Russia, raised in the United States, goes back to Russia. And he's, he's a, a character who, in some ways, on a journey to discover who he is. He's cast into the role of, you know, spy, first working for the KGB, and then for the CIA. And there's a line in the novel about the fact that, you know, his first enemy was the CIA, and the White House. And then he fought, you know, Moscow Center and KGB. And he makes the comment, you know, they're all the enemy. They're all the same. He's a guy on the outside. He's on the inside, but he's outside. And he's a bit of an existential spy. And in some ways, it's the way we all live our lives. We all have jobs. We all do things. But in some part of us is always not there. We're all sort of having, you know, a personal journey in our lives. You know, who are we? And so when you have a spot asking themselves that question in the midst of, you know, a very dangerous mission, to me, it sort of creates a, an interesting place for the reader to explore him as a, as a character. Paul, are you ready for a couple bonus questions we call a series of seemingly random questions? Of course. First one, you just mentioned you referenced your agent. A lot of writers... Up-and-coming writers, aspiring writers, those writers just starting out who don't have agents yet or managers. Are there any words of wisdom, you'd say, for querying for those writers to get their foot in the door? If you're looking for an agent, the advice I give is the advice I took for myself, which was I found four or five writers whose work I thought mine was like. And often those writers credit their agents in the book. So I went to a couple of these agents and sent them an email saying, here's my book. It's similar to the book of another writer that you represent. Would you be interested in taking a look at it? And one of those turned out to be uh, successful. And the thing that is important about that story is that you know, there are many, many, many agents out there, and they're all looking for talent. The challenge is how do you break through the noise of sort of a random email going to somebody who isn't necessarily interested in the type of work you've got? And the way you sort of minimize that noise is to try and target people by virtue of who they already represent. 
somebody obviously who represents romance novels is not going to be interested in the spy novel. So it really doesn't make sense to send them something. So doing your homework, researching agents who represent books similar to the one that you think you've written, you know, is one way to increase your chances of getting successfully represented. Love that. And I don't believe we've heard that before specifically. So that's a great one. Second to last question, if you could take any writer living or dead to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why? There's several writers that I would take. I would enjoy having dinner with Graham Greene and also with John Le Carre, and probably both of them at the same time, because I admire their work. And it would be fun to hear them talk to each other. I would listen. I wouldn't say anything. And I would take him to Baltazar, which is wonderful restaurant in Soho, one that my wife and I go to all the time. And it's got, you know, a bit of the ambiance of a bistro, very lively and wonderful waiters, and just sort of encourages social discourse. But I would be a fly on the wall conversation between Graham Greene and John Le Carre. Graham Greene, by the way, called A Spy Who Came In From The Cold Le Carre's third book, the best spy novel he had ever read. And when I read it the first time, I was quite blown away by it. And that book inspired me in many ways in my own career. The very last question for those writers who are listening, is there one thing, one learning or insight from your entire career that you would pass along to those listening? Is there one thing you would choose to say? Write regularly, write diligently, knowing that most of what you're going to write is not going to be very good. But the discipline of writing daily will get you to the place where you begin to feel confident about your work and you begin to feel good about your work. Paul, did you have fun today talking to us? Absolutely. As a writer who likes to write, the only thing better than enjoying writing is enjoying talking about writing. <laughs> love that. Love that. Hope we were able to, you know, do a crash course into writing a spy novel. It was great to hear your process. The Mercenary is being released on February 2nd through Pegasus. Paul, is there anything else you want to plug? Whether it's upcoming works or your website or your Twitter, anything you want to shout out? No one thing. Just it's been a pleasure talking to you and I've enjoyed this a great deal, and I've enjoyed your podcast. So thank you so much for having me on today. Well, thank you, Paul. Congrats on The Mercenary. We're really excited for it. It's coming out again February 2nd. If you're listening, please check it out. And Paul, thank you again for your insights and your time. It was an honor, and we hope to have you back on again soon. Thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.